Welcome to Pop Culture Rx, part of Hackensack Meridian Health's award-winning podcast. Pop Culture Rx is where we sit down with a medical expert and talk through various health-related topics circulating in today's media. In our discussions, you'll hear from a variety of professionals sharing insight and advice on these newsworthy conditions. This is Pop Culture Rx. Noted as one of the best new TV shows to stream right now, Dope Sick, based on a book written by Beth Macy, brings us into the epicenter of America's struggle with the opioid addiction, from the boardroom of Purdue Pharma to the mining community where Oxycontin was introduced to the hallways of the DEA. Today, I'm here with Rachel Wallace, the Director of Substance Abuse Counseling Services at Retreat and Recovery at Ramapo Valley to help us navigate kind of what this crisis really entails. Just a few weeks ago, the CDC released new data showing America's drug crisis continues to deepen, and it claims that 100,000 people in the U.S. over a 12-month period have passed from an overdose. That's a big problem. It really is, Kylie. And I think initially, we knew that 2020 was going to be, that those numbers were just going to be unbelievable. You know, and to see 93,310 just in 2020, and then just a few months later, they come out with this incredible increase, I think 28.5% increase of 100,000, the first time that it surpassed those numbers. And from the treatment world, we're baffled, right? Because there's so much happening. There's so many innovative things that are happening, you know, on the front lines, in the emergency rooms, with community outreach to address the issue, yet we continue to see these numbers just climb. And in addition to that 100,000, if you add alcohol-related mm-hmm. deaths, it's another 95,000 a year. Wow. So a lot of times we're so focused on the opioid epidemic because it is just destroying communities and it's impacting our younger folks. I mean, of course, addiction has no specific catchment area, if yes. you will, but primarily it's a faster, quicker, sudden death with with the opioid crisis and overdose. But alcohol-related deaths has been constant over time, 95,000 a year, more of the silent yes. epidemic that we very much see in the treatment world alongside with opiates. And actually, that's a really big point in the show, in Dope Sick, and I'm not sure if you, you've watched the show. It's, it's incredible. I read the book, and okay. I'm about halfway through. Yes, yeah. it's incredible. It, and It is. Part of the show, well you, it brings you into one of the rehabs, and they talk about how people are in and out of rehab, and there's like this constant flux. And then they also talk about how you know, when you're addicted to alcohol, that it's more of like an in and you're out and it's a little quicker to to recover. Whereas versus an opioid, you can be in and out, you know, several times before you can actually be recovered from this addiction. Is there any truth to that? Or what have you seen a lot of people coming in and out and in and out? Like, how can we help those people? Yeah, I think, you know, We certainly, in having a conversation about addiction and talking about recovery, we have to talk about something we refer to as recovery capital. So recovery capital are internal and external resources that people have to support them in their recovery. 
a lot of times what happens is with folks that are struggling with alcohol use disorder, because it's so really socially acceptable, alcohol use is very socially acceptable, oftentimes people are able to continue working. And there are some consequences, maybe legal, a DUI charge, or some issues related to work. But oftentimes they are able to continue as much of a normal, if you want to say, life, life that they can. With opiates, because of, as you see in dope sick, typically it might start off as prescribed medications and then very easily they're transitioning to purchasing, whether it's prescription medications or pressed pills or heroin. Um, even now people seek out fentanyl. It's not just that they discover that it's in some of the substances you're using, they're actually seeking this as their primary substance. That leads to a lot more legal consequences. There's a lot of social stigma surrounding that. So sometimes those folks coming into treatment, they don't have a lot of that recovery capital to draw from. They might be homeless, they're not working, they may have legal charges that keep them from even obtaining employment or even obtaining housing. And so that struggle is much greater Yes. Then someone that might be able to go on disability or short-term leave from work to address their alcohol use disorder, get back on track, resume their work, continue to have health benefits and you know work and structure and stability. And I'm not saying that folks with alcohol use disorder don't get to a place of you know homelessness and um, unemployment, yeah. but a lot of times you see with opiate use disorder and other uh, drugs that the devastation is greater and sometimes it's harder to kind of come back from that so those early time that early time in recovery can be critical and if they don't have a lot of stability and support yeah oftentimes you see that they have what we'll call a setback what people refer to as relapse and the cravings are so incredibly powerful and that's in the brain people just feel like it's willpower right like just well, it caused you so much problem. Why, why would you yeah. continue to do that if it created so many problems? But science shows us in the brain what's happened there and there's changes in the pathways and it is a very biochemical response to what we know is uh, as triggers, right? So that literally there is this brain response to um, a person, a place, a situation. And a lot of times folks need to really be able to slow down and just tap into their recovery capital, their resources, their support system. And when you go into treatment with nothing, it's kind of hard to be able to establish that when you first when you're first released. Yeah, and and you mentioned these cravings. So I, I don't know if you would like to explain the definition of of dope sick is really a term used by people to describe the daunting and physical mental barriers to quitting. Yeah. They are getting physically ill from not having the drug within their system. So then it's it's not at the point where they want to take the drug, but it's the point of they're trying to avoid the complete agony right. of withdrawal. And and you see that within, within the show. Yeah. Um, another relevant film recently to act be released i think it was released in may was four four good days with uh, mila kunis and glenn close which is the story of a young woman that is just waiting four days to receive a vivitrol injection to help with cravings and they they show the details the raw 
tragic details of what active addiction looks like and they do the same in dope sick when you see them not even knowing what's happening right like i don't know what's wrong with me i don't know what's going on with me and very quickly folks realize that to avoid that withdrawal is to simply take a little bit of that of that substance you know in in folks with uh, alcohol use disorder you hear the phrase the hair of the dog Mm mm-hmm Right. And, you know, mimosas and and Bloody Marys for Sunday brunch. Right. To kind of take the little bit of the edge off of that that Saturday night. And with with opiate use disorder, you have to understand one thing that we all know is that when when folks are first using, when people experience that first use of any substance, any mood altering substance, you go from feeling normal to feeling euphoria. Uh, It releases dopamine in a much powerful way uh, in the brain, more powerful to the brain than um, things that our survival system was set up to, to feel pleasure from, right? So we feel pleasure and that tells us, do that again. So our early survival instincts, we experience pleasure when we um, eat, mm-hmm. drink, um, have sex, take care of our young, right? Have shelter. These are things that our brain was kind of set up for survival. and and. In, in our earliest days of, of the caveman and the cave woman and the little cave family, um, <laughs> each time they did those things, the brain released dopamine and said, this feels really good, so keep doing this, right? Yeah. So then as time goes on, we have mood-altering substances. And whether that's someone smoking a cigarette for the first time or drinking alcohol for the first time or taking an opiate for the first time. And so you're feeling normal and you feel euphoria and then you go back to feeling normal. So over time, particularly with opiate use disorder, you're no longer using to feel euphoria. In fact, you're using just to feel normal because you're in a constant state of pain. And it's not just physical pain emotional pain Mm -hmm. it's spiritual pain there are a lot of losses Um, there is incredible guilt and shame and these um, you know individuals that find themselves dependent on opioids never really chose this for themselves and that's a hard thing for folks to get well it's a choice and we want people to understand that while initially there is a conscious choice to use substances when people are first starting. Once the brain is hijacked and they get to a place of physical reliance and also emotional reliance, um, it's no longer really a choice. They're just they're yeah. just using for survival. Yeah, and you actually you, something sparked with me. It's for the most part, it's really not a choice because a lot of times it's you're coming into the doctor's office and you're experiencing some type of pain or something going on or maybe you had surgery or something like that and it's you're you're taking your word of of someone who's respected in your life and right. and then it kind of spirals out of control yeah there certainly is a level of trust and as you saw in dope sick the way that the pharmaceuticals presented this to doctors and doctors saying wow this is a solution yeah. i have for these patients that i'm i'm trying to help and not realizing over time what you know what what that was going to mean yeah. you know for individuals so um it is it's baffling and i think that a lot of people you know i saw the pulse on social media when dope sick was first released and i didn't watch it at first and seeing people's responses, you know, the anger, 
Yeah. And for some people, fear, you know, and, and look at where they were, you know, Appalachia, America, where there were vulnerable individuals. Those were folks, when we talk about that recovery capital, they didn't have a lot of that, right? They were living paycheck to paycheck. And mm-hmm. um, they were just kind of trying their best in this, you know, mining town. And they were very vulnerable to yes. um, to substance use. And they were hard workers. So they knew, so the, the pharmaceutical company knew that these people need this drug and maybe at first the pharmaceutical company thought you know where they kept bringing up the word miracle drug because right. you know it, it removes your pain and it's like makes keeps your breakthrough pain to a minimum and right. all these things and and at first maybe yeah like it seemed like a miracle drug but then once you're really in the thick of it and you're seeing all these studies and you're seeing all these people become addicted and the community totally ravaged you realize like okay this isn't actually a miracle like this is actually pretty bad right right and when you think about those hundred thousand think about all of the people impacted by those losses oh, right yeah children and parents and families and co-workers and communities and you hear people um will say that they've lost five or six of the their friends that they graduated with you know and and that and that translates into, and that's what I think is very powerful about dope sick is that it brings it to the human level. You, yeah. ex, you, you get on the level of the individuals and you see that they are, it could be you or me or people we know and love for sure. Absolutely. And I mean, you mentioned the 100,000 again, it's, it's not even just 100,000 people affected because it could be millions of people affected by this crisis maybe they're not necessarily taking drugs or not necessarily addicted to something but they are affected in their lives and in their communities from from either the loss or trying to get their family members different types of help yeah and the impact also of substance use disorder on families and children and you know and i think that's part of where stigma certainly comes from because it's not like other diseases in the effect that it has on on individuals Um, one of the things that we know is that there are some survival skills of active addiction and those are things like not being truthful lying sometimes stealing you see in the in the how it's portrayed about the desperation there's desperation to not be in that excruciating pain and so with that people are hurt in that yeah you know and I think that it's important for folks to understand that when we share about that, about the progression of addictive illness and how it does go from being a conscious choice initially to really being beyond choice with a hijacked brain, we want folks to understand that it doesn't excuse some of the behaviors, right? And, and that's why people have a plan of recovery. They have a plan to try to make amends for those things and to try to make their lives better and to try to heal relationships that may have been harmed as a result of, of substance use. So it, it doesn't excuse it, but it certainly does explain it. It explains to a mother or a father or a child why is my loved one behaving this way i can't understand what has happened to them yeah and it sometimes can help them understand we always want to give education around the behaviors right to understand those behaviors that if your loved one was not addicted to substances most likely they would not be engaging in those behaviors yeah and so we mentioned lying stealing is there any other behaviors or red flags that that family members should be aware of Sure. Um, you know, manipulation is is a big one. It could be, for example, related to money. 
right? Um, I, I, I can't put gas in my car. How am I going to get to work? I just need I just need more money. And so the loved one might feel a little guilty if they're not mm-hmm. helping them out. Sometimes it's more subtle, right? You'll 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 notice that something's just not right. I just can't figure it out. But they're just not themselves. And because you know, as this as substance use progresses, it, it there's change in personality for sure. People start behaving in ways that they wouldn't. Um, some people, some family members might notice that there is are things missing from around the house. You know that that things are being taken, particularly with opiate uh, dependence and addiction. That there is this drive. Um, to to find money and and mm-hmm. have resources to be able to to get their drug per se, but it's little. It's so subtle and it's so, you know, over time, it's very difficult sometimes for families to really see what's going on because a lot of times you just want to convince yourself that that's not that's not it. They're just yeah. having a bad day, right? So there are the obvious signs. Um, one thing with opiate addiction is something called a nod, which is really where an individual almost looks like they're falling asleep kind of as we would be in a conversation and it would almost look like the person you're talking to is just kind of falling asleep and that is a sign that someone might be under the influence um, of opiates sometimes it could look like they're kind of rolling their eyes um, and that's referred to as a nod Um, when folks are in withdrawal they might um, be shivering and shaking they might have a difficult time modulating temperature cold one minute you know warm the next minute Mm -hmm. you might see what's called goose flesh uh, or um, goosebumps goosebumps, right on the skin scratching sometimes is a sign that someone may have recently used opiates they start scratching on their skin there's itchiness to the skin and so when you look at those things in totality over time uh, you know, once you know it, you know it. But when you don't know what you're looking at, you just think yeah. that they're not feeling well or they just didn't get enough sleep or, you know, there must be something going on. Their doctor's prescribing them too much medication. And again, the family members will convince themselves that it's anything but their biggest Absolutely. fear. So let's talk a little bit about, about treatment and access. So retreat and recovery. And then we have the Blake Recovery Center. Mm-hmm. And there's there's a lot of different access points, especially within Hackensack Meridian Health. But even in the show, it mentions how limited these resources are. How can people get access to us? Yeah, and I think that the first thing we really need to do is continue to reduce stigma. Yes. Because there are so many people suffering and so afraid to talk about it, and so many families that are impacted by addiction, but it's not something that you scream from the rooftops. You know, and one of the things we think about is if a family member, say, was diagnosed with cancer and, um, you know, people will rally in the community. Family will, friends and family will rally around that individual and they'll start meal trains or they'll do rides. How do we Mm -hmm. get you where you need to go for treatment? And with substance use disorder, we don't necessarily have that response, right? People aren't pounding down your door saying, what can I do to help? It's changed over over time. There's been a noticeable change in it. But the first thing we have to do is let people know that you are not alone. And sometimes that comes from just having conversations like this, just normalizing it, that it impacts so many individuals, right? We don't even know the number anymore. They used to say one in seven. Now maybe it's one in six, right? It's everybody. It's everywhere. Yeah. And so understanding and appreciating that and and becoming aware of your own bias around it. When you think about addiction, what's the initial thought that you have, right? And a lot of people have very stigmatized bias around what somebody who is struggling with addiction may look like. Mm-hmm. So changing the face of addiction was a campaign a few years back, right? That this is... A, 
everybody. It's anybody. Yeah. And and once stigma is reduced, we have to recognize that there's various access points for folks, right? We we can't have a conversation about addiction and recovery without talking about the importance of prevention and that real primary prevention that's happening in schools um, as we speak. Things like starting to teach kids about mindfulness and some social emotional education and learning how to identify feelings and emotions and kindergartners are now doing yoga. You know, these are all <laughs> things that are really primary prevention that we, we we can't even measure what that potential impact will have on folks, right? And so prevention, education, and then once folks are ready for treatment, we have to be able to find them affordable treatment and also help them understand that you could get good treatment in your own community. You could get good treatment in your own state, right? A lot of times media has kind of pushed this idea that you need to hop on a plane and, and go out of state. Yeah. And New Jersey has really good regulations around treatment and what quality treatment looks like. And so I think that, I guess what I'm trying to get at is to be careful when you go online and you Google anything because probably those first three pages are paid ads mm -hmm. of treatment centers that are putting a lot of money into trying to generate folks to come to their treatment facility, which is great. It's not to say that that's not important for us to get the word out, but for the loved one to really kind of vet the program that the individual is going to. Yeah. Um, you wanna check with your insurance to see if it, you know, what facilities will take insurance, right? Because again, this is a big, business there is a lot of money in the treatment world and there are a lot of wonderful programs that folks can go to without a lot of out-of-pocket cost because it's covered through their insurance um, we have the with mental health and insurance parity in new jersey there are a lot of people that there's no barrier for them to getting treatment they'll automatically get you know 28 days without yeah. any uh, fight from the family to say my loved one needs this treatment right so certain insurance plans will have that and then it's just making of the phone call and and sometimes being persistent and um having the conversation with the loved one and getting the loved one on board and sometimes that means that the family might need to go for supportive services first right to to help that loved one accept treatment and to help the loved one understand that you know that we want to support you and we want to help you and we want to get you treatment um, there are a lot of barriers, unfortunately, more barriers than there are. It's sometimes very easy for people to continue use. And it could be dangerous. That's the other thing is that detox and withdrawal, not so much for opiates, as painful and excruciating as that is, um, but with alcohol and benzodiazepines, people can die in withdrawal from those substances. They can experience seizures. They can experience a very scary, horrifying medical condition called delirium tremens in which there's hallucinations. And it can be very, very scary. So sometimes for folks, just getting them to the local emergency room if they're in withdrawal can be a good entry point. Yeah. Letting the social worker or the team know, you know, we, we want to get treatment. And then kind of knowing your options. Some people aren't able to go away for time. Um, and also another thing is um, we have this idea that it's 28 days in treatment and it's really based on kind of medical necessity and what that individual needs. Some people can start in an intensive outpatient program. Some people can even 
enter recovery and get sober by going to peer support groups in their community. And there's multiple pathways to recovery. It's it's the traditional 12 steps, as people know. And then mm -hmm. there are so many other options for individuals um, that really there is something for everyone in the recovery world. So we take what we call the client-centered approach and we want to know what are you willing to do right now? What can you do? What are you willing to do? What are you able to do? And we want to start with kind of that least restrictive placement yeah. for folks. Um, and, and kind of take it from there. And, um, you know, gone are the days of um, yelling people into treatment. And we have really found a lot of different ways um, to get people to say, this is a disease and I deserve treatment for this disease just like I would if there, I had any other chronic medical condition. Yeah, well, you mentioned the pathways of the brain being kind of construed because of the drug itself. So. Right obviously you would need some type of treatment to redirect the pathways of your brain and and even in the show it, it mentions how oh well i'm a year out so my brain is more is clearer right. my my thoughts are clearer because they're reconfiguring the pathways of of their neurological system yeah yeah and it's you the science tells us 12 to 18 months that you know that we can look at these PET scans and brain scans of individuals who are addicted to different substances versus a control brain. And you see the notable changes, primarily with the dopamine receptors. And so at that 12 to 18 month mark, a lot of times if you took a picture of that person's brain, it would look very similar to the control brain, right? So it, they, it, the brain does heal in that time. And there's a lot of support we can offer folks, primarily medication-assisted treatment. This mm -hmm. is something that is... I mean, it's not a new concept at all. Medication-assisted treatment was being used to help folks with alcohol use disorder, you know, for, for decades. And the FDA over time has continued to focus on things to help individuals manage cravings. It is amazing to me as an addiction professional to work with someone that says, I'm not having cravings. Because a lot of times we focus on managing cravings and how do you cope with it and how do you deal with it and when they're saying i'm not having cravings then we can start to talk about the other things right mm -hmm. the co-occurring anxiety or depression and medication assisted treatment is available for folks who are struggling with alcohol use disorder um, opiate use disorder there's some other trials you know there there is not medication assisted treatment that is fda approved for uh, stimulant use disorder, but there's some trials, you know, hoping to kind of make that make that happen for individuals. And um, that is incredible to just help them manage those triggers and those cravings in that early time so that they can start to practice their recovery program, whatever that might look like for them. Um, they can get back to work. They can start to get stable employment. They can start to clear away some of the damage that's happened, you know, yeah. in their lives. And, and that's an incredible tool in my toolbox as a mental health and addiction professional. Yeah, and really start to build that community, build that support around what they're going through. Because like you said in the beginning, you might go into it and have broken family ties and not have a job and be homeless and all these different things. And once you start to, you know, get a little bit back to normal, I guess, right. quote unquote, you can start to build those relationships and those those things again yeah and I so I'm a licensed clinical social worker initially my initial training was actually working with traumatized children and in child abuse and neglect and I transitioned into working with addiction really as a, a life choice I, I became a mom I had a family and I was looking to transition and, and work part-time 
And I found passion and I found connection and I found commitment and working with people that are seeking recovery and that are are entering into that world is the most gratifying and rewarding. It doesn't even feel like a career, right? It's mm-hmm. just something I get to do every day. Because we, we, we use that word normal, kind of returning to normal. And the coolest thing about people in recovery is a lot of times they become a better version of who they, they were before they even started using. You know, and, and people in recovery are, they're joyful and they're passionate and they have connection and they have commitment and they're honest and there's a humility about them. There's a focus on continued self-growth and self-awareness and their biggest focus is on being of service um, to other individuals struggling and even just to the community in general. So finding a recovery community is so important for folks. First of all, to know that you're not alone, um, to kind of find your tribe, if you will, yeah. you know, people in recovery, to celebrate that, to reduce the stigma, but also to have recreational opportunities, to continue on a spiritual path of growth and development to um, you know, have a place to go for a sober St. Patrick's Day or a drug and alcohol-free Super Bowl, right? And yeah. so there are these recovery community centers that are formally popping up and informally being developed in communities. And this goes back to the early days of the development of Alcoholics Anonymous, which was in the 1930s. So it's not a new thing, but what's new about it is people aren't so afraid to say, I'm a person in long-term recovery, yeah. right? And and this is this is what I do. So I get excited talking about that because it is just the coolest thing to see people really at their worst. And within a few weeks, you start to see them smiling more and you see the color come back to their faces and you see their eyes get brighter and they're paying more attention to their, their physical appearance. But then you see that inner change too, which is... I can't even put into words how incredible it is to see that, to see people that have known so much pain and then are able to transform that into healing themselves and other people. Yeah, it just sounds, it sounds incredible. It is, it really is. So I want to, I want you to walk me through maybe a day at Retreat and Recovery or at Blake, whichever you prefer. Sure. Um, And kind of, you know, if I were a person looking for, you know, recovery if I were a person looking to get rid of or I guess recover from an, a, a, an addiction situation mm-hmm. what would that look like me walking in on day one that's a great question Kylie I think we'll start with Blake Recovery Center so Blake Recovery Center is a um, that has a detox program and also a residential component to it so when when people are typically saying I need help I need to stop they are not well at all Right. This is a medical issue. And so these programs will first offer medical intervention with very caring, understanding and compassionate um, doctors and nursing staff and techs that will assess for withdrawal symptoms. They'll assess for any comorbid conditions, whether it's related to medical or mental health. And the first thing they want to do is help people feel comfortable and be safe in that uh, withdrawal process. We refer to it as withdrawal management because that's what they're doing, right? There's comfort meds that might be offered so people are not feeling the incredible pain of opiate withdrawal. There's oftentimes nausea, diarrhea, vomiting. This is with opiate or alcohol 
um, withdrawal. And so we just want them to feel comfortable. It's not like they're feeling great, but they're not feeling so terribly ill that they want to leave and use again. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of the first stage. So the first few days, you're really just being kept comfortable. A counselor will meet with you um, to start to connect and find out what are some goals you might want to work on while you're there that may involve involving family. We know that family is very important to have involved. And the counselor will just really kind of connect and get to know the individual aside of addiction, right? Who are you? Where do you come from? What's your cultural values? What are your spiritual beliefs? How has addiction impacted your life? Um, tell me about your work. Tell me about school. Tell me about your family. What do you love to do? What are your interests and your hobbies? So we're starting early on to kind of get that individual seeing the bigger picture, right? Okay, my life is multifaceted and addiction has been primary. And so how has that affected my life and how can I start to look at and think about a life without, you know, without substances? And as soon as they're able to comfortably do so, they start to participate in groups. The most wonderful thing about treatment is connecting with other individuals that will truly understand your struggle and your triumphs like no one else really can who hasn't necessarily experienced it. So there might be groups on managing triggers, understanding addiction as a disease. Um, there's recreation groups where they might play volleyball or um, karaoke, right? Uh, to see somebody say laughing two to three days into treatment and experiencing joy in a way that they say, I haven't felt this in a really long time, is really exciting um, to see. And um, other groups at Blake Recovery Center, there's an equine program. So Carrier Clinic has a very strong equine therapy program. And so they will find themselves over with the horses or the donkeys and using that as um, some uh, analogies in recovery, right? Uh, to help them start to establish what their pathway to recovery is gonna be and to start to connect, learn how to connect again because they've just been so disconnected from so many things. You know, there's groups on managing and coping with co-occurring issues. It's not uncommon that folks experience co-occurring anxiety or depression. And the chicken or the egg is that big question. Is that part of the reason why they developed a substance use disorder? Or is that because of substance use disorder? Kind of doesn't matter. We just want to help them identify that and manage that um, the best that they can. And, um, you know, there's, there's meals and there's snacks and there's social time. And then there's a lot of deep, deep digging, right? And, and journaling and spiritual connection. They may meet with a chaplain there to start to talk about how this um, has affected them spiritually. And, you know, setting kind of religion aside, spiritual growth is a huge component of someone's recovery. And we want to start them, you know, thinking about that while they're there. And then we're always planning for discharge from the moment they walk through the door. We want to find out, do you have stable housing? Um, what does your support network look like? If you don't have that, how can we help you create that? For some people, it might mean going to a sober living program when they leave. Um, transitioning to a partial hospitalization program when they when they are discharged or transitioning into an intensive outpatient program and that might bring them to Blake Recovery Center's outpatient program right there in Belmead uh, and it may bring them to us at the retreat and recovery at Ramapo Valley and we are located on the most beautiful property in Mawa it is the grounds of the formal retreat um, it was called the the retreat 
uh, the Carmel Retreat, I'm sorry, where it has an incredibly rich history, but it's sacred. The ground is sacred. It is beautiful. And we offer intensive outpatient, which is um, three days a week, three hours at a time. So folks get structure and support, but they're also able to resume their their work lives, their family lives, um, along with the structure of being in treatment. Yeah, it's like dipping your toes in. Exactly. Going back into society. Yeah, we kind of talk about like a slow step down where folks are able to just continue to have the structure. And they may only go back to work part-time when they're in intensive outpatient. We do have a physician that will meet with folks. Um, We also work with a psychiatrist as well. Because again, oftentimes that the co-occurring mental health, they're very closely entangled. We want to make sure that we're really looking at all of, you know, what's going on so that they have the best chance, you know, in their recovery. And the connections, that, again, that you see the folks making is, uh, it's, it's, it's heartwarming. It almost seems like an understatement. We did a uh, Thanksgiving gratitude meal and it, mm-hmm. the, the clients said, let's bring in food. Let's do this, right? Let's sit down. And to see them all sitting around that table, so genuine and authentic and a little vulnerable, you know, with each other, some acknowledging that um, this has been really hard for me to do with my family because of the impact my addiction has had on them. And I can kind of do that here. And again, sometimes I, I pinch myself and say, wow, I get to come to work and do this every day and see people grow and change and transform. Um, And then with IOP, we want to see folks getting involved in some type of recovery support, which may mean working with a recovery coach, finding a connection in peer recovery support programs like AA or Smart Recovery or Celebrate Recovery. There's Refuge Recovery. There is an incredible amount of, again, there's something for everyone. All of them do involve some component of prayer, meditation, mindfulness. So we want to start exploring that with folks as soon as they get through the door, Um, understanding the importance of mindfulness and just being aware of yourself and your feelings and your emotions and how that can really help manage cravings or emotions or manage high-risk situations. Um, And they stay with us for, you know, three months up to six months. We transition them to outpatient um, and then we're developing an alumni program because we're a new program. Um, we have a few alumni that are real excited to stay connected, and um, that's exciting for us as well. Yeah, I was going to actually mention what kind of volunteer opportunities do you have for the the community to to kind of help these people and to to get involved. Yes, so at Blake, um, they do have AA groups that come in from the community every single day to bring a meeting in. And that is really important to start to introduce individuals to the idea of what this peer support thing is, you know, is all about. We can also use um, folks, as we're developing the program, we'll find more opportunities for volunteers. Um, this year, as we kicked off Recovery Month in September, it always starts with overdose International Overdose Awareness, which is August 31st, and it rolls into Recovery Month. We're already starting to talk about next year having a lot of things on tap where we could bring in folks from the community um, to celebrate recovery, to also acknowledge those that have, you know, that have been lost um, to the disease. And there certainly will be more volunteer opportunities as we um, continue to grow. We have to remember that confidentiality is still really important. 
Um, but we welcome folks to come tour our facility and also let us know what are you doing in the community that we can connect our folks to. So that can be the greatest way folks can be of service um, to our individuals is to say, we um, do a community group where we meet once a week and we go out to dinner at different places, right? Alcohol free. Mm -hmm. Or um, around the holidays, we could use volunteers because we want to get folks in recovery connected to their communities in different ways that they can be connected. So the more we learn about the community surrounding us, um, you know, the, the better we are in helping our individuals get connected and, and helping the community, again, reduce, understand that, you know, reduce that stigma surrounding it yeah. and realize that these are um, incredible individuals that Absolutely. are part of the community. A lot of times because there's so much emotion involved for family members when they're talking to their loved one that's struggling, we will always encourage them to seek support. Um, whether that be through a family coach. So a lot of organizations will offer family coaches to individuals. Um, in Bergen County, we rely heavily on Care Plus and the family support organization there. And I give loved ones the phone number and they're paired with a family coach that will use an evidence-based approach that I tend to lean towards. It's called the CRAFT model. And it was developed by Dr. Bob Myers. And the CRAFT model really helps you learn a different way of interacting with your loved one. So the old way may be that the loved one doesn't come home when they're supposed to, finally stumbles through the door and is clearly impaired or under the influence. And the old way would be screaming and yelling. You did this again. Don't you know I've been sitting up worrying about you all night? Why are you doing this to me? Can't you see what this is doing to me? And all that does is just push the 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 significant other away even further. It isolates and alienates. And again, those are part those parts of addiction that is just so, so difficult. It becomes very alienating and isolating. So learning a shift in communication, learning to recognize how the loved one is feeling in that moment and to learn a different way of interacting, which in that moment could very simply be, I'm glad you're home safe. I see you're not feeling yourself. I'm going to go to bed and I hope that you will too, right? And then the next day kind of finding a way to say, you know, I've been really concerned about you when the emotion is not as intense. Um, the other thing is joy is taken from relationships when substance use has kind of taken over. Um, people are kind of living in their own fight or flight. Uh, the loved ones are not sure where they stand with the individual that's struggling with substance use. And so as difficult as it may be, we encourage people to reconnect with family traditions, um, to think about something that maybe they did together, right? That they don't do anymore because of substance use. Like, you know, we used to go for bike rides and we had so much fun doing that and I miss that. So I'm wondering if you wanna go for a bike ride next week. And then, you know, the one that's struggling with addiction is kind of diffused by that, like, wait, what? Yeah. You wanna spend time? Okay, right, let's spend time together. And so maintaining and strengthening the relationship, which has been so impaired, can actually help successfully navigate that loved one to treatment because they're open more to hearing, you know, the message when it's not too loud or, um, or hurtful. But a lot of times people need professionals to help them do that. Yeah, and it actually the way that you were speaking about that reminded me of something recently. And it was an article about Thanksgiving and speaking to your family about the COVID vaccine. Right. And to always be starting with empathy. Right. That you understand, you know, other people's thoughts and like you understand and you, you can 
place yourself in their shoes for just one second right. um, instead of getting into an arguing match right from the get-go. Right. Yeah, to place ourselves in someone else's shoes and look at it from their perspective for a little while sometimes can change our own perspective for sure. Absolutely. And you know, the holidays are a tough time for everybody, not just for people struggling with substance use. It's a tough time. And um, it also can be a time where typically people are around more alcohol use. It's just a regular part of it. Um, And so for family members to kind of be aware of that, that maybe that means a changed tradition. Maybe it means um, an alcohol-free celebration. Even if folks are identifying that their primary substance may be opiates or other substances, a lot of times people do kind of the whole picture of recovery, right? Which means no alcohol, no drugs, no mood-altering substances. And sometimes families could be helpful in asking that person, what are you comfortable with, right? Are you comfortable with there being alcohol there? But also respect the boundary if the person wants to come late and leave early, to not take that personally. They may have been told that by their counselor or their peer recovery group. Go late, leave early, right? Show up be a part of but if that can be a stressful time for you and could be a high-risk situation then have an out yeah absolutely yeah and I mean that goes for anything exactly you know everyone you everyone always has an out I know for myself in terms of like hinge dates and all that you always have an out (laughs) have the friend texting you to find out right exactly Exactly. so it's not that weird to to think that all right I have I have this amount of time here and then this is my out if I need it yeah and a lot of times it comes down to boundaries. Mm-hmm. And so the family members and the the person in recovery or the person struggling, you have to learn how to communicate those boundaries, but we also have to learn how to accept those boundaries from other people too, you know, and kind of not take it personally. Thanks so much for being with us today, Rachel. Thank you. I enjoyed it. If you have a topic you'd like for us to cover, submit your ideas on hmh4u.org backslash podcast. Your suggestion could be included in the You Asked For It special episodes. The material provided through this Help You podcast is intended to be used as general information only and should not replace the advice of your physician. Always consult your physician for individual care.